This podcast is brought to you by Proton Dealership IT, the cybersecurity and IT experts committed to keeping your dealership safe from cyber attacks. To learn more about how to better protect your dealership, go to info.protontex.com fish. That's I-N-F-O dot P-R-O-T-O-N-T-E-C-H-S dot com slash P-H-I-S-H. Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year Automotive News digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, October 19th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, Tesla reports disappointing third quarter earnings as Elon Musk tempers expectations for some big projects. Stellantis takes on Ford in the commercial vehicle space, and Cruise will team up with Honda to commercialize robo-taxis in Tokyo. Plus, did Bill Ford and UAW President Sean Fain stumble onto a possible path to a deal in their dueling statements this week? If the automakers acquiesce to at least most of these demands, it's going to have knock-on effects on all the other auto manufacturers in the U.S. who are going to have to raise rates to stay non-union. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Tesla says its profits and margin shrank in the third quarter after it slashed prices to boost demand. Its gross margin was about 18%, down from about 25% a year earlier. Net profit fell 44% to less than $2 billion, while revenue rose 9% to over $23.3 billion, which was short of the $24.1 billion that analysts had expected. On the earnings call, Tesla CEO Elon Musk tried to tamp down expectations on two of the company's more high-profile projects. He said the electric vehicle maker is moving forward on plans to build a factory in Mexico to produce affordable vehicles, but it is not pushing an aggressive timeline to do it. I think we want to just get a sense for what the global economy is like before we go full tilt um, on the Mexico factory. Throughout the call, Musk struck a somewhat pessimistic tone about high interest rates, saying they were making it difficult for consumers to afford new vehicles. He included that among a number of reasons Tesla fans and investors should brace for a long and difficult ramp up of the highly anticipated Cybertruck pickup. I think it is our best product ever. Um, It is going to be require immense work to reach volume production and be cash flow positive at a price that people can afford. Musk reiterated Tesla's guidance to produce 1.8 million vehicles this year, but he wavered during the earnings call on whether the company remained committed to achieving 50% global volume growth annually for the foreseeable future. Meanwhile, Tesla drivers will be able to charge their electric vehicles without an adapter at select charge point stations beginning this month. ChargePoint is one of the largest public EV charging networks in the U.S. It says it has begun shipping Tesla's North American charging standard connector for Level 2 in DC fast charging. Many other charging companies plan to add the connector beginning in 2025. Tesla drivers make up more than half of the EV market. 
the North American charging standard connector will be available for non-Tesla drivers to use once traditional automakers launch EVs with that plug around 2025. ChargePoint CEO Pasquale Romano tells us at Automotive News that the company expects the majority of its customers with fast chargers to add the Tesla connector. Tesla vehicles initiated more than 35 million historical ChargePoint sessions. Romano said, quote, if it weren't for Tesla, we would be dead. Stellantis aims to surpass Ford and become the world's largest maker of light commercial vehicles. The push for more sales to businesses and governments includes a new unit called Stellantis Pro One and four electrified pickups in North America over the next two years. In addition to the electric Ram 1500 Rev scheduled to arrive in 2024, Stellantis says North American plans include a new hydrogen solution as well. Ram also has shown U.S. dealers a concept version of an electric midsize pickup. Stellantis says its 1.6 million global sales trailed worldwide leader Ford by 200,000 to 300,000 last year. Toyota was number three. And GM RoboTaxi unit Cruise will begin commercial service in Tokyo, and it will do it through a partnership with Japanese automaker Honda. Honda CEO Toshihiro Mibe and Cruise boss Kyle Vogt announced the plan today at Honda's global headquarters in Japan. The project represents a step forward for autonomous driving development in the country, where local players typically trail pioneering tech companies in the U.S. or China. The companies will begin testing Cruise's Origin RoboTaxi in Tokyo next year, with the target of starting a driverless automated ride-hailing service in Japan's capital in 2026. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, Tesla's profits and margins shrank in the third quarter. Do you think we'll continue to see this theme with the EV market becoming more competitive? Yeah, it sure seems like it. You know, Tesla still has a very strong position in the market, but with all the competition coming against, you know, even key vehicles like the Model Y, Tesla's just cut their prices so much that's maintained their market share, kept it above 50%. Uh, but it's going to cut into the margins, as we've already seen. And yeah, there's no end in sight. The incumbents are going to get more and more involved in more of the market. And Tesla is going to have to press their cost advantage in order to maintain share as best they can. Interesting. Coming up, Bill Ford and Sean Fain traded contentious statements this week. But in doing so, did they accidentally reveal a path to a possible deal? We'll talk about that next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is, is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. 
I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Email phishing happens every day. Cyber criminals are out to trick your employees and coworkers into handing over valuable information that can compromise your dealership through impersonations, fake giveaways, and urgent emergency requests. All it takes is one click to shut down everything. Phishing is the leading cybersecurity concern for dealerships. Without the proper training and protection, your business is left vulnerable to ever-evolving attacks. One day you click an email, and the next thing you know, you get a call from your IT guy. Your email has been compromised, shut down immediately. Stories of attacks and their consequences come flooding in every day, and all it takes is one click to shut down your dealership. You have enough to worry about as it is, don't add getting hacked to the list. Let Proton Dealership IT help ensure you are fully protected and learn how at info.protontext.com slash fish. That's I-N-F-O dot P-R-O-T-O-N-T-E-C-H-S dot com slash P-H-I-S-H. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Ford Motor Company Executive Chair Bill Ford and UAW President Sean Fain nipped at each other on Monday, but ironically, there's a potential compromise path out of the UAW strike if we take each man at his word. That's the idea from our own Larry Velquette, who covers Toyota and Volkswagen for us at Automotive News. He wrote about it in a column that you can find on autonews.com. I spoke with him about what he saw in those statements and why he thinks it could reveal a way out of the strike. I reached him at his home office in Monroe, Michigan. Larry Velquet, welcome back to Daily Drive. It is lovely to be here again, Jamie. <laughs> I appreciate you joining. So you had a column this week that got a lot of people's attention. And the week started, it's been pretty slow uh, news on the UAW front, but Bill Ford, you know, who is the executive chairman of Ford Motor Company, really the, the leader of the family in the business, and someone who's had a long relationship with the UAW, you know, went to the Rouge factory complex uh, and spoke to the media. He said, choosing the right path is not just about Ford's future and our ability to compete. This is about the future of the American automobile industry. Toyota, Honda, Tesla, and others are loving this strike because they know the longer it goes on, the better it is for them. They will win and all of us will lose. Sean Fain, the UAW president, came back just an hour or two later, and he said, I'm going to read this quote too, it's not the UAW and Ford against foreign automakers, it's auto workers everywhere against corporate greed. If Ford wants to be the all-American auto company, they can pay all-American wages and benefits. Workers at Tesla, Toyota, and Honda are not the enemy, they're the UAW members of the future. Larry, these guys don't seem to be talking very well to each other, kind of maybe at each other or really past each other, uh, but you saw a path forward uh, in in their shared visions. Yeah, it's funny. So <laughs> for those of us who weren't in on the conversation that you and I had before all this happened on Monday, right, we had been talking, or at least I had been thinking about the UAW's organizing efforts. I covered uh, Toyota and Volkswagen now uh, and Subaru as well. I also have uh, some history covering the UAW, as we all do in this industry, right? But as much as the UAW would like to make these historic contracts, 
and it looks like they're, you know, they're doing okay so far. Uh, I think what's interesting is that is what the knock-on effect is going to be on organizing down the road, right? That's where if these contracts are successful, if, if the automakers cave, then you know, and and acquiesce to at least most of these demands, it's going to have knock-on effects on all the other auto manufacturers in the U.S. who are going to have to raise rates to stay non-union, right? So that was the initial premise. And in their thoughts, and let me go back first, that was the initial premise, but the UAW hasn't had any success in organizing these foreign automakers, right? Not in organizing, but in influencing. We often see, uh, you know, raises by the UAW kind of matched or at least shadowed uh, by some of their stronger, more northern competitors. You know, at least, you know, Honda in Ohio and Toyota in Kentucky, you know, they've got UAW locals, you know, right next door in places yeah. like Louisville and Toledo, Cleveland back in the day. So, Dayton. you know, they really are competing. And they do. What's different now is that, as we wrote last year, right, We and we talked about the problem that automakers are having in the South and really where they've they put their plants in rural areas where there aren't a lot of workers to draw from. And so their starting wages are actually above what the UAWs were right now uh, in many of these plants because it just, you know, through the uh, the magic of, of competition. So that was, that and, was and they we didn't were and in. they didn't have their hands tied by a four year contract, right? When labor became scarce after you know the pandemic, Toyota and others you know could react. And when you know when the local Wendy's and Amazon warehouse started paying as much as starting wages at the auto plant, well, the auto plants raised their starting wages. Yeah, yeah, they were actually paying more. So these guys were losing out, and it's a tough job. I mean, you and I would never want to do that, right? Nor, nor would anybody that, that's <laughs> listening to this that's not, uh, you know, that's not already doing it. It's not a job that somebody's going to choose because it's a fulfilling career that makes them feel good at the end of the day. Yeah, so, I used to think it could be rewarding, right? And and it is, I'm sure, on some level, right? Making stuff, having you know, beautiful cars come out at the end of the assembly line. But as I've gotten older, right, I don't think that repetitive motion is something <laughs> I, I really want to do for uh, eight hours or more every day. No, no, absolutely not. If you talk to any of these guys, it wears on their body. But let's talk about where this common ground is, right? So in these two comments, what you see is, I think, a way to bridge the gap, to at least find a common agreement, at least in terms of the wages. The domestic automakers would be committing malpractice if they put themselves at a competitive disadvantage right off the bat and their labor. But some of that responsibility belongs to the UAW's inability to organize outside of the D3, right? Yeah, they the now, Detroit 3 really are the UAW 3. Right. That's, yes, that's, that's the what they bond. are. <laughs> yeah. That's the common bond. So if they are able to negotiate to win contracts, to organize, and arguably they have the most favorable organizing landscape that they've had in maybe 60 years between the general public's perception of unions right now, as well as uh, the actual number of union members having gone up uh, in the last couple of years, although the, the rate has gone down because the number of overall workers has risen. 
and they have an administration that actively promotes unions and you know the president we saw the president actually on the UAW <laughs> picket line or at least visiting so they have this landscape and they have a responsibility to organize right that's part of the mission of being an organized labor is to go out and spread the word they haven't been able to do so i don't want to speak for Sean Fain but i would hope that he thinks that having it, getting successful contracts with the Detroit three would lead to organizing wins. But the path forward, I think, is, okay, if you organize these non-Detroit three automakers, then maybe there is a reward. There is an incentive that can go because because our labor rates won't be non-competitive then. They will be more competitive if all these other auto workers, the non-union auto workers, are also being paid the same thing. So can this work? Hell, I don't know. Can it be ratified? That's maybe even a bigger question. Right? Ratification would be interesting. I mean, it would be amazing to see something structured like that, you know, maybe 25% raises, but 10% kicker if you can organize, you know, three plants, three non-union plants or something like that, 4%, 3%, you know, for each plant that gets uh, picked off. But it would be really a matter of, would the rank and file bet on the leadership's ability to organize? Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because if they did it for the past 60 years, they would have lost. But you can make an argument, not only is the is the landscape better, right? But this is obviously a different UAW now. Not just with the leadership, but because the scandal kind of washed away, I'll channel my inner Roman Catholic, <laughs> Roman Catholic self, right? Kind of washed away our iniquity, <laughs> <laughs> cleansed us from our previous sins. <laughs> But and your your point is a, is a strong one because during the most recent organizing efforts, the UAW is in the middle of the investigations around their scandals, and it made a real easy counter argument. You know whether it's from management at a at a southern plant or from just you know members that don't want to pay union dues and don't you know and are just suspicious of a union. They're like, look, these guys are, aren't representing their members and they're you know, on the take. Uh, but, uh, you know, now there's been so much cleaning of house. There's still a federal monitor. It should be a different kind of union. It should. Now you look at the Volkswagen vote in 2019, right? A 40 vote swing the other way. And that wins. That was the second election that they had. They had the governor of Tennessee come in to actually do a closed door meeting with the workers to say, please, please don't vote for the union. So there were but some it was outside, very close, but it was, yeah. it was still very close. So there were some outside influences that, uh, you know, just that's part of being in the South. That's why auto, it's part of the reason automakers went to the South. Right. So I think you're going to see, regardless of what, of how this all settles out, whatever happens and it will have some effect on their future organizing ability, right? It's either going to be a positive effect or negative effect. We don't know that yet until, and, and we won't until the contract is done, but it, there will be an effect. And it's something that the UAW is going to have to live with for the next three years. And that's part of the reason I think that they're so motivated to get great contracts this time. Probably a long shot, but we will be keeping an eye on it, and uh, as well as the UAW's organizing efforts in the in the years to come. Larry Velquette, thank you so much for joining me today on Daily Drive. Thanks, Jamie. Always great to be here. Larry Velquette covers Toyota and Volkswagen for us at Automotive News. You can read his column and other UAW coverage at autonews.com. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. 
And I'm Callan Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer, as well as our own Lawrence Eiliff, Hannah Lutz, and Hans Grimel for their reporting for today's podcast. We also had reporting from Luca Ciferi of our sibling publication, Automotive News Europe. You can get the latest news on the UAW strike, the latest earnings results, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about how modern retail can be a boon for dealership finance and insurance. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.